From the north, citizens of Earth, welcome. Today is somewhat of a deviation from our traditional programming. What you are about to hear is a joint show going out both here and over at Skeptical, where we review and celebrate the latter's 15th anniversary as one of the most important indie media podcasts. You will learn its fascinating history, why and how it has progressed, what it has achieved, quaint anecdotes and experience-based conclusions, all of which I think most of you are unaware of. If you are familiar with Skeptico, you will understand why the subject matters discussed today are old hits like pseudo-skeptical conspiracy, mind over matter, parapsychological science, and even the UFO phenomenon, and much more, with inputs and contributions from skeptical friends Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Greg Carlwood from The Higher Side Chats, Gordon White from Rune Soup, Darren and Graham from Grimerica, and Miguel Connor from Ilmbite Gnostic Radio, who will drop by as a secret guest. In addition to main guest, of course, Alex Akiris, host and producer of Skeptical. Although Alex deserves compliments for his accomplishments, we will limit the fawning and keep the focus on the topics and achievements of this mother of all podcasts. And as for our guest, let me briefly remind you that he's an entrepreneur and science philanthropist, originally from Chicago, now based in San Diego. He studied computer science, business administration and information systems, and was a research associate in pursuit of a PhD in AI. He spent several years as a Pricewaterhouse consultant and founded the successful IT firm MindPath Technology. Apart from several business ventures, Zakiris started the open source science and is also a member of Texas Instruments Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. He's also a practicing yogi, biker and ice bather. He's published two books per today, which we have had him on to discuss in past shows. Indeed, he's appeared in innumerable podcasts and radio talk shows. And like previously mentioned, today you will hear from the hosts of a few of them. Skeptico has a reputation for profound discussions on controversial science and spirituality with cutting-edge researchers, thinkers and their critics. It's had millions of downloads and is the only podcast of its kind which has earned a respect among everyone who is anyone within the fields of its purview. But there's no point for me to go on here with this presentation because you will learn all this stuff and more in the show today. So without further ado, let's get right to it. In this episode, we welcome the yogi godfather of indie podcasts, Mr. Skeptico himself, Alex Akiris. But before we kick off the show, listen to this. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. 
Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest, I don't want you to write, I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm not going to take this anymore! Even if you've never seen the 1976 movie Network, you know the line delivered by the one honest newsman, Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore, crystallizes the anger and powerlessness felt by the individual who has no recourse optional plan, trapped in a system of lies, corruption and control. Uh, sounds familiar, Alex? And and welcome to the show, by the way. <laughs> welcome, you sneaky devil, you <laughs> sneaky, sneaky devil. So do, do we have to, like, uh, explain the metaphor here or? Well, you know, like we were just chatting about a minute ago, we could probably go really deep into that and because there's some spiritual implications with that too, you know, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Are we really supposed to get angry? And given that that was a movie from way back then, and it still reverberates today, what does that say about our situation that we think is so new and unique and crafted just for us? I don't know, man, you know, that's the whole uh, deep into the rabbit hole that we're going to go. Yeah, that's for sure. And usually you line up these kind of video clips to reflect on the guests. And I think, like, if you go back to the 70s, of course, nobody did what this uh, character in the movie did. But <laughs> in the movie, there was at least one honest newsman. And while we may look back at the clumsy way he wanted to, I mean, he managed to get everyone out of the windows. Uh, that's this butterfly effect. You know, like Mark Gober told you in a recent interview. And mm -hmm. so I kind of think of you in this, you're not angry like him, but you are trying to shake people out of the sleep and you are seeking truth. And uh, uh, I also think you have influence. Uh, we, we're going to review that today, actually. Okay. Now, I have to say, uh, before we really get going here, is that Alex is completely oblivious of most of today's show. He gave me the full power to do it uh, my way. And so <laughs> we, we're going to try to limit the, like, how you said, when you inflate someone's ego, the ass kissing, the... <laughs> bribery i don't know the english word but you know what i mean yeah but if something like that happens it's not alex's fault okay 
he's as oblivious as the listener. Well, I've been instructed by you to stay within some very narrow guidelines. Yes, so, yes, exactly. And I'm always trying to engage with you because I love our dialogue so much, but I've been told just to shut up. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, today I'm just a robot. I'm going to try not to dominate this thing. Uh, let's start uh, by something that maybe many listeners are not so aware of, and that's your background. I'm, I'm talking about the pre-skeptical. I mean, like, like me, you're a rather private guy, but you, you share whatever you want. I think there's uh, some key experiences, at least, that would be interesting for people who love the show to know about, because I think it has informed. I mean, we are all a sum total of our experiences, right? And you you didn't have a career in radio before you started this. So, so how, how on earth did you end up, or, or I should say, what on earth did you do before Skeptical? Well, yeah, I was really just a business guy. But even before, so, you know, I went to school and I got an undergraduate degree in computers, computer science. And then I got an MBA and my college was really, I have a football, I had a football scholarship. And I was very focused on playing football and that was kind of my thing, my life, you know. But I was, I, I did, you know, manage to get the undergraduate degree and the MBA. And then I went to work for a, a consulting company. Pricewaterhouse, a big eight accounting firm. And I was doing computer programming basically for hire. You know, they mm. put you in a Brooks Brothers suit and then all of a sudden they can bill you out for astronomical amounts of money. So, so you sat in a cubicle? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've done although, that too. <laughs> although, you know, that's more of a, where I worked was kind of a work for hire thing, you know, so they would rent you out, you know, and you right, would right. go to... Ralston Purina or Anheuser-Busch. I was in St. Louis office in the United States in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh. And, you know, these were the large, you know, Fortune 100 clients that we had. So, and then I got a, I, so I was doing that. And then I wound up in Alaska on a job for the state of Alaska. Wow, you lived in Alaska. Yeah, I did. In Juneau. That's hardcore. Yeah, it was great. And, uh, but I, I really decided that this corporate thing and the cubicle thing, I mean, I didn't understand it. That the, I didn't understand the soul crushing part, but I understood the soul crushing part. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think so many people can relate to this. You know, you don't exactly, you can't exactly put your finger on what's wrong with this because you're doing what you were been programmed to do and what, you know, what, what everyone's telling you is success, you know? So I was trying to look for a way out. I said, you know what? I'll go back to school. I'll get a PhD. I can teach. So hang on, hang on. At this point, you already had uh, taken a degree in what subject? So I was undergraduate in computer science and then a master's in business administration. Oh, okay. okay. So I was kind of a, a, a business guy. Yeah. So I decided to go back. PhD, the primary goal of the PhD was not anything academic or intellectual. It was like, hey, get a PhD in business and you can kind of make really decent money as a professor. It's high in demand, da, 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 da. Go to the University of Arizona. So I start teaching computer science classes while I'm getting my PhD in information systems. And then I stumbled across this thing, artificial intelligence. And I ran into um, a, a guy happened to be, you know, I never made this connection, but it was a Norwegian guy and we became really good friends, Oystein. And Oystein had a- <laughs> Oystein, typical Norwegian name. <laughs> he, he had a similar background to me and he had worked for uh, an accounting firm like I had. 
And uh, we both were fascinated with AI and we started kind of put, cobbling together a curriculum in artificial intelligence. And then, so that's what we're doing. I was off and running. And then I got into it and I got a couple of uh, 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 opportunities to go and teach at corporations. The first one was Texas Instruments, you know, the defense contractor, you know, mm. but uh, a lot of bright people there. And they said, hey, come on in and teach our engineers about artificial intelligence. We want to do that. And that led to a job at DuPont. And I had all these corporate wow. clients and I was making a lot of money relative at the time, you know, I yeah. thought, wow, you know, screw the PhD, you know, I was a couple <laughs> years into it. I'm going to be a multimillionaire in yeah. no time with this yeah. AI stuff. So I left and I started a company called MindPath Technologies in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, and, and you invented stuff. You're, you're, you're an inventor or was an inventor. Well, I, I saw that again. <laughs> You know, I just saw that as it, it, the intellectual property play, the IP play, you know, you're referring to like uh, Mark Gober, that's what he used to do, is 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 essential in high tech. So mm. I don't know if I was an inventor as much as from a business standpoint, protecting your intellectual property, right? As your intellectual property is a smart move. So I applied for patents and I got some patents and all the rest of that. But again, my play was just about the money, just about getting paid, you know, wasn't. But, but surely you must have given thought to the, con because the concept of artificial intelligence was new back then. That's when it started basically. And I mean, I mean, of course the concept has been imagined by people, but, but that's when people started to working with something that could go in that direction. Did you at that point, because you weren't that, you, it was before you had explored consciousness and all this, you you probably didn't make your mind up for sure on stuff, but did you have any thoughts about if it ever could become like a real sentient thing? Did you believe that back then? No, I didn't, because the AI at that point was so weak and so lame, and it was really kind of A hype? just... It was very hype. And for mm. people who were really into information systems and computer science, they saw it as hype. They said, this is just computer programming. Yeah. It's being relabeled <laughs> as artificial intelligence. As, as Cliff I said, um, he says, trash in, trash out, something like that. <laughs> well, it, uh, th there's, there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is if anyone who's ever used a spreadsheet, um, you know, realizes two things that one, like the spreadsheet is good for doing stuff that would be really hard to do manually, you know, adding up numbers in a column like they've had to do since the Babylonian times or whatever, you know, it's really great at that. Yeah. But the other thing that it, it becomes something of its own beast, if you will, because now you can start doing forecasting with just a simple spreadsheet. It would be completely impossible. And that causes, from a consciousness standpoint, for you to imagine problems that you never would have imagined because now you have that tool. And the same thing goes on with AI. So mm. now you amp that up times a thousand because that's how many factors greater it is now. And AI is reaching some places that no one had had really anticipated and we're not really sure what the implications of those are you know i'm so all all that is is an interesting separate discussion but at the time no i was just you know mm. looking to uh I, I just saw it as an opportunity really as a business opportunity mm. well with quantum computing that's a game changer so 
Mm-hmm. We have to watch that spot and see how it develops. But I'm still, I'm still uh, leaning towards. No, it's not going to be. It's not going to be sentient in any way, shape, or form. But if they can make them so refined that we can't tell the difference, exactly that I believe. Oh yeah. yeah. So they will become like it, it may be a robot, right? And and you'd think you're interacting with a human being, but it's just a super advanced computer program. There's no sentient life or well, consciousness that already, there. That already goes on today. You know, if you ever, yeah. if you ever trade stocks. I, the example I always use, mm-hmm. if you trade stocks, you are competing with a robot, an AI robot. If you oh, yeah, play, yeah, for specific it, tasks, chess, right? Chess, chess uh, poker, but mm. this is for money, right? If you go online and you play online poker for money, you're competing with a robot. Not all the time, but you're likely to run across a robot. So, and that's where it really pops up. People think of it as a robot's going to walk up to you and serve you tea. Well, no, the first time you're going to encounter a robot, and you already are encountering a robot, yeah, is yeah, when you go onto your screen because that's where they're the best. So again, stock trading, you know, any anything, you know, how long you wait in line on for technical support, or you know how right, right. whether you're, we all see it in advertising, you know. So all that yeah. stuff is where AI is just it's it's not even worth discussing its potential. It's already here. It will further and further encroach. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, yeah, we're already there. Yeah. Well, folks, you'll be so happy you tuned in today. See, you already got the free business idea. Get a super good poker robot, put him in your account and make him play all the different online uh, uh, competitions, etc. And just earn money. Very good business idea. Right, right. <laughs> but you had other values, or I should say, thought processes than just business back then, because uh, we all know Rupert Sheldrake was essential in in getting skeptical off the ground. But there is a story between that happened and you deciding to become rich, and, and you actually managed that. I well, mean, see yeah. the thing. The other thing is that's that again. You know, this is so awesome for that you're doing this, and it's it's flattering, and it's almost also fun. You know, to go through all this stuff. But mm. the, the parallel path I was on that you can relate to, and probably resonates with the Skeptico show, is I was the yogi. I was a yogi. I don't know why, but I knew I was drawn to this stuff. And like I, I've said a couple times, you know, I'm sitting in a little 400 square foot apartment in Dallas, Texas, very small, crappy apartment with no rent because I'm an entrepreneur startup and I'm putting all my money into my business. And at the same time, I'm doing correspondence courses with Yogananda, the the, the author of Autobiography of a Yogi. And, Mm. you know, it's pretty obscure stuff. If you've ever looked at, if you take those books, if you read his book, Autobiography Autobiography of a Yogi, you're invited to do the correspondence courses, which, you know, I've been down to the center. I now live like, I, I, I ride my bike uh, many days up to a little peak where I look out over at Yogananda's uh, ashram. Wow. It's it's unbelievable, this connection that I have. And I do yoga. Is he, is he, is he buried in, in California? I don't think he is. 
Um, oh, but, ashram, uh, not a grave. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and and he has several centers. He has a center in L.A., but he has a really significant one in Encinitas, California, near where I live. That's really beautiful, and has a lotus flower, and there's a yoga uh, cafe uh, or Swami's cafe right across the street. And you know, when I talk to Riz Verk, who we'll probably talk about in the show. Funny thing is, and funny thing, you know, coincidences. So I'm interviewing Riz and fantastic genius MIT computer scientist, Brilliant game AI expert, simulation theory expert. And he goes, hey, I was just, and this is before I'd give him the whole yoga thing. He goes, mm -hmm. I was just contracted by an, Amer an Indian publisher with an American connection to do an autobiography or to do a biography of Yogananda. And I said, so then I told him the whole thing, my connection to Yogananda. I said, when you come down, let me know. We'll, you know, it's right up the road. We'll go to the Swami's cafe. So I didn't see it as particularly unusual that I had this intense, you know, pull towards yoga. And at the same time, I was all about the money and that I was doing as an entrepreneur and I'm doing the correspondence classes. But that's was that's what I was about. So it was like, as soon as I had a chance to cash in my business, I was like, great, that's out of the way. Now, <laughs> now back to the yeah. stuff that I really want to explore, which is, you know, who am I? Why am I here? And as much as I was a yogi, I was skeptical of all that crap. Because yeah, yeah let, let me add a couple of things, because we're going to leave that subject matter just on Yogananda. He was also a Freemason initiated into Freemasonic order. Now, um, did not know that. No, most people don't. But this was in the time. You remember when the skeptics had this outreach where they were so visible in uh, everywhere? Uh, this must have been that time, right? Yes. Right. So you got drawn into that, uh, those debates that was happening then. Oh, yeah. That was a big part of, of, of what my show wound up being about initially, not because of I was pointed in that direction, but as soon as you started to explore any of this stuff, you encountered these people in a very major way. And I don't want to step three, four steps ahead. But boy, I look back on what was all, what all that was about. And I see it completely differently than I did at the time. Yeah. And I yeah. think that vantage point, which you and I have talked about, has really been brought into focus by the pandemic more than anything else. It's, yeah, it's kind yeah. of we we all took them more seriously than they deserve. But um, but back then, uh, when uh, I mean you, <laughs> I mean in skeptical, you went into the whole problem with a no nonsense businessman's attitude, which is fantastic. It's the same with uh, with Mark Ober that I actually interviewed yesterday. I mean, I've never had a guest who's so succinct and to the point. Usually I have to fight with the guest over the world. He answers your question exactly as you asked it, and then he's done. <laughs> he said to his defense, yeah, I'm used to being in board meetings. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking you took some of that no nonsense approach, uh, into skeptical, but uh, actually that's going too far. Uh, you must have discovered Rupert Sheldrake at some point, um, and that conflict. I, I did. Well, the way I discovered Sheldrake is kind of as you're talking about, you know, we all have different personalities, and then we're, our personalities are shaped by our training, you know? So yeah. my training, both as a 
computer programmer and as a business person was pragmatic. Uh, like you say, kind of sort through the bullshit, which you're surrounded by in business. I mean, a lot of people who are not in business don't realize that. But I mean, you, you just surrounded by that, you either learn how to sort through it very quickly, or you're just or you don't get very far, you're just mm. plowed under. So I you get Sheldrick, you understand Sheldrick. Sheldrick is that that energy in a lot of ways. Sheldrick, Sheldrick is a nice guy, but he's kind of a no bullshit guy, you know, yeah. and he doesn't suffer fools mildly. And but in a very polite way. So I just like the matter of fact way that he talked about this stuff. And I was drawn to that. And at the same time, Dean Radin, I mean, uh, again, the, the coincidence thing versus, you know, right timing thing. But my first two interviews are with Dean Radin and Rupert Sheldrick. Yeah, back then. Uh, hard, Radin. hard to top that. Yeah, of course. But back then, I don't think Radin was. I mean, he was very well known in, in academic circles back then. Uh, Shellrec had already gotten a name outside of those circles, but um, okay. So you discovered this thing, and and uh, I think you were in touch with Shellrec too before you launched the show. I actually got in touch with Sheldrick and I said somebody needs to somebody needs to be interviewing you more and getting your opinions out there. Yeah. And he said, "Why don't you do it?" Right. And I said, I don't, I, I don't know anything about that. I've never done, I don't do that. We've got to get somebody else. <laughs> right. We, we have, I actually have lined up your, your explanation of how it all started. Let's listen to that and then, uh, okay. and then uh, comment. But, you know, <laughs> since Sheldrick was such a crucial figure to get it started, I wonder what take he would have on it. You know what? Let's use the power of imagination, as one says. So if Rupert was with us right now, I would simply ask him, how would you describe the inception of Skeptico as well as its evolution? And what message would you have for Alex? Take it away, Rupert. Yes. Well, so the thing is, I can't say very much about his recent activity, you know, because I don't follow podcasts much because I don't drive cars or jog or anything. So um, I do watch YouTubes a bit, but not... Um, so I haven't been following the Skeptico podcast in detail. So when I look at the website, it seems that his scope is now considerably broader and he's dealing with political type issues as well as the mere skeptic situation. But uh, um, no, I'd be happy to talk about things I hopefully do know a bit about. So I'm a long time ago. I was running a website called skepticalinvestigations.org, which has now changed its name some years ago to Skeptical About Skeptics. And the reason I was doing that was that um, I was just really annoyed at the way that these so-called skeptics, who are basically dogmatic materialists, were getting away with murder. They were pretending to be the voice of the science establishment and the voice of science and reason. They were taken seriously by the media. They were always appearing on, at least on British media and in American media. And they'd had a well-funded campaign through the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, or PSYCOP as it then was, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Um, you know, a well-funded way of trying to dominate the media and to keep anything about parapsychology out of serious media and the educational system and dominate Wikipedia. Well, all of that was something really annoyed me and, and I thought there has to be a countervailing voice. And so 
uh, with a group of, of other people doing research in these areas, we started this website, Skeptical Investigations, to investigate skeptics and the and their organizations, not to write polemics, not to be rude or have personal attacks, but simply to have dossiers showing how little scientific credibility most of them have and, uh, you know, how flawed their arguments are and how uninterested they are in reason and evidence, even though they claim to be. So anyway, um, Alex read this uh, website and read articles on it, and he got in touch with me and said he liked this approach and was, you know, thought it was very helpful. And what could he do to get involved? And there wasn't a lot he could do to get involved with the website because, you know, he could have written some articles, but he had plenty of time and energy. Um, and that would have been you know, slightly a waste of his energies. And I've forgotten whether he brought it up or whether I did. We had some telephone calls uh, and I suggested or he suggested a podcast dealing with these kinds of themes. I've forgotten whose idea it was in the first place. But anyway... It became a podcast, and um, he did it very well. I mean, he um, really went in depth into these various topics. And so anyway, he launched the Skeptico podcast. And then um, he, at one stage, I met, I've only met him once in person. Um, he was doing a film about consciousness. I was teaching at the Esalen Institute in California, and he came by, and we did an interview there for his film. Uh, one of the problems with the interview was that the ocean waves were so loud that it was slightly hard to hear what either of us was saying um, because it was right by the Pacific Ocean. Anyway, that, so, so it started really with Alex contacting me before he started Skeptico, you know, discussing the general situation, what's going on. And at that time, um, as you might know, he wasn't particularly against the skeptics he thought they might be right so i think he genuinely wanted to find out who was right you know the people who did psychic research and claimed there were phenomena really happening like the sense of being stared at and telepathy and dogs that know when their owns are coming home or um, whether the skeptics were right and that the whole of this was just deluded pseudoscience and um, he was genuinely keen to find out and so he interviewed people on both sides and I think that as a result of that, he fairly soon realized that actually the skeptics didn't have very much to say except denialism and denunciation and, um, in some cases, um, misleading claims. I feel that Alex's interviews went in greater depth than almost any others in this area because he was not trying to just put one side he was trying to look at the other side and for example i had a long-running dispute with richard wiseman who claimed that dogs didn't know when their owners were coming home even though when he did an experiment with the dog i was working with he got the same results as me that actually confirmed my data um and there's been a lot written since then about his misleading claims and uh, the way he managed to get his claims all over the newspapers as if he could totally debunk this phenomenon when he'd confirmed it. And it was an extremely misleading operation. But Alex really went into this. You know, he interviewed Richard Wiseman, he interviewed me, he read the various papers, and then in one of the programs, he had us on together in a kind of debate. And, you know, no one else had done that, and it was really helpful um, 
to have a forum in which people could hear both sides of this argument. Because normally in the skeptic uh, media, I mean, for example, Michael Shermer's skeptic column in Scientific American or the Skeptical Inquirer or skeptical claims in newspapers and the media, uh, you only hear their side. And um, so it was really um, unusual to have a forum where both sides could be heard. And I think that's one of the great strengths of, um, of Alex and, and his whole project. Alex has not only the skills of interviewing people and the energy to make this podcast work, but um, he was, has also had various proactive enterprises, in, more like an investigative journalist. I mean, there's something about his style which is that of a good investigative journalist. And at one stage, you remember the late James Randi was always going around saying he got this million-dollar prize for anyone who could show psychic phenomena. And he used this uh, as a media stunt, and the the rank and file of the skeptic movement would reiterate his claims. If it's so good, why don't, why don't you claim the million dollars? So um, Alex did actually try and claim the million dollars. He um, found a dog that knew its owner was coming home in, in, in the United States. Um, he did some filming. He did some experiments. And then he got in touch with James Randi saying he'd like to enter the contest. He'd got this dog that knew when his owner was coming home. And this was based on my own work on the subject. Um, and Randi, who'd lied about doing experiments of his own, which he never did, and lied about analyzing my data, which he never saw in detail, it was obviously rather reluctant to get involved and so he simply didn't reply to emails he tried to fob uh, alex off i mean alex can tell the story better than me um but basically it became very clear that he had wanted nothing to do with this investigation and dismissed it as a stupid um uh, inquiry and um you know, I think at one stage he told Alex he he got better things to do than listen to stupid dog stories. Um, so far from being open-minded and inquiring into the phenomenon, as his uh, many of his supporters thought he was, as they thought this was a genuine scientific endeavour, um, he basically only wanted to expose and debunk people with this prize, which he never intended to award. And it was also very questionable if he actually had the million dollars, even in pledges. He claimed not to have it actually in actual a bank deposit, but claimed that a lot of people had pledged to give it if called upon to do so. All that was very questionable. Uh, but the point is, Alex called his bluff by actually <clears throat> um, having a research project that would have qualified for the prize and then finding um, Randy back out and try and dismiss it. And that was a very powerful investigation. No one else had done that. And a lot of people were frightened of Randy. Um, and Alex called his bluff, and it was a great thing to do. And I, I think he, he did a great job there. I think so. And, um, and I think he really did help change the culture. I mean, the, the skeptics have been a lot less um, aggressive. Um, the area where they're still completely in control and where they do the most harm is Wikipedia, and anything, nothing anyone's done has managed to solve that problem. Even Alex hasn't uh, 
solved the Wikipedia problem because, as you know, they've captured the biographies of people like me and all the pages to do with parapsychology and psychic research. They've defined parapsychology as a pseudoscience and therefore everything to do with it is dismissed and derided. Uh, they just, they, they're very keen to describe me as a parapsychologist, which I've never claimed to be. I, I call myself a biologist. But the reason they do that is because on, on Wikipedia, parapsychology is defined as pseudoscience. So calling someone a, a parapsychologist basically classifies them as a pseudoscientist, and they're still getting away with it. Um, it will take more than Alex to change the culture of Wikipedia, I'm afraid, but I hope he's changing the culture surrounding it in such a way that it does eventually change. I, my message to Alex is thank you and keep up the good work. We really need independent voices, people with real curiosity and intelligence who are prepared to look at controversial issues um, without being a, a polemicist on, on, who have an open-minded approach. And I think it's very important to model that. And there are very few people in the world doing this. So I'm really pleased Alex has done it. And I very much hope he'll continue. Of course, that was Dr. Chelbrek himself, who was happy to phone in to deliver his comment to this anniversary show. Okay, so we got his take on that, Alex. I suppose you can confirm his his uh, description of how it proceeded. Well, I am I am grinning from ear to ear. It's like an like you know the connecting with an old friend and. Uh, what a giant, yeah. you know, we, we say, it's been said, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Rupert Sheldrick is just such a giant and just someone who's stood up to that. I'm itching, itching, itching to talk about this topic, but I feel like we're going to, it would propel us too far forward. You're right. Especially the skeptics, we're getting back to them. We're still at the inception of skeptical. And, and the, the one thing that I that I throw out as a teaser for anyone is I remember when Rupert and I met in Esalen and his uh, wife was there too, who's a uh, very, very uh, accomplished uh, therapist and very intelligent woman. And uh, the topic of Randy came up. And one of the things that came up from them, which totally caught me off by surprise, mm -hmm. again, and here's the hint, spoiler, yeah, is yeah. that Randy was somehow involved with pedophilia or some kind of... Oh, my God. They were on to him back then? They were on to him back then wow and they didn't say they said it in a they said it in a way i want to make sure that i'm not like they, they just said it in kind of an off the cuff well you've heard the rumors about him and little boys or or boys or young men or whatever i forget mm. the exact phrase but mm. it was just that it was all that stuff is so that is so pre epstein and pre you know a pizza gate and all that stuff it just had a different impact and i remember hearing that and i'm going why would they be saying that these are super credible button down british people i'm surprised right. that they're disclosing something unless they really know something so mm -hmm. even though they're saying it in a kind of which i think he generally was you know or, and i think it was actually his wife who said it is just it's a rumor you know it's not like i'm confirming it and now i'm spreading that rumor but it's 15 years later and all the stuff has come out on randy so i feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. i'm not it's more than a rumor yeah i don't feel like i'm violating any confidence here other than to say that that was a rumor that was circulating 
at that point, and they had some awareness of it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, he's a matter-of-fact guy, and uh, he pointed out a very important thing. He said that he got the impression that you were sincerely inquiring. You weren't there to have an agenda, but find out. And and that's, you know, I told you before, I never I never listened to podcasts before I started my uh, podcast back in 15. But, right. of course, some small drips had reached me, and I remember... Back at that time, when there was this big skeptic uh, brouhaha, then uh, some episodes of, of Skeptical reached me. There were people in my circle who listened to it, so especially through Facebook. Right. And I have to say, Alex, Skeptical, especially in the beginning, it was like a public court right. kind of people. I knew spiritual people who are a little academic agnostic people and even atheists were following you in the beginning and everybody was like you know how people are tribalists right and even back then they were uh, especially on this issue so i I think the different sides those who had defined as sides they were very excited because they wanted they were probably sure their side would win and then there were all the people in between which were more my friends uh, who were sincerely excited too to find out because they people really picked up that you were going to get like Shelrick said he said there weren't many forums for both sides and we're going to get back to that too because <laughs> that's a huge problem but you managed in the beginning to do that so I guess you planned already when you talked with uh, Shelrick about launching a podcast I guess you already planned then to get him on at, at the first show Right. Well, again, you know, when I first approached him, I was like, you need to do a podcast. And he's like, I don't know how to do that. And I go, well, it's easy. You know, we'll just hire somebody and we'll get somebody. And he's like, okay, but and and Rupert's really great at this in a very, very uh, positive way of kind of pulling people in and then giving the he's a tremendously, as you can hear, he's a he's a very straightforward guy, but he's extremely generous of spirit, you know, like he would never be one not to credit someone for something that they did the opposite, you know, I mean, he's done so much, and he's crediting other people, which is, again, those are, I think it's rather humble for a scientist. He is, he is. So he's a he's a light bearer, Mm. you know, he is gladiator of the light, it just comes through. That's who he is. That's who that's what I want to be. That's who you are. That's our, those are our models in. Yeah in life and our culture. But anyways, so it was purely that of saying, hey, you ought to do this. This isn't hard. You could do it. Again, I'm a tech guy. So I'm like, this isn't hard. And he's like, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a tech guy. I go, okay, I'll do it. And I said, well, we'll hire someone to do the interview. And the first guy I contacted to do the interview, he did a terrible job. I was like, well, <laughs> I know I can do a lot better than that. So then there, there I am. I was you, you had, in the seat. Yeah, you had a passion. But, but just, I mean, back in 2007, podcasts hadn't taken off i mean people knew what it was but it wasn't the same thing did you listen already then to joe rogan and stuff how how did you even understand that that i was was... into all that stuff i was into you know i was the um i don't know uh, again i'm not going to ask you questions but i was in the lifelong learning mode so i was like recording radio interviews (laughs) so that i could listen to them on my you know, right. little Walkman kind of MP3 Walkman kind of thing. You know, yeah, I was yeah. 
and then when podcasting came out, I was like, great, I'm already doing this. Let's do some more. It wasn't like a big, you know, this is the next. No, big transition. No, it wasn't. But were you aware of solely podcast shows? Well, I mean, I know many media show, mainstream media shows were podcasted. I guess that's how it uh, originated, that there was an archive for mainstream media shows. But were you all also listening to mere pure podcasts like Joe Rogan back then? Well, as soon because as... Because I, I think Joe Rogan was going already then. No, I don't think he was. I mean, as soon as that stuff started to happen, I was all over it. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, it was a small little community and that was what I wanted. I was interested in the content. So I was looking for the content wherever I could find it. I think a lot of people at the time were and that's how they found Skeptico because there wasn't a lot of this kind of content out there. Yeah, okay. I'm looking now, uh, I'm fact-checking us as we speak. Um, damn, you started before Rogan, man. He started December 24, that's Christmas Eve, 2009. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds right. Wow. See? When I called you the Godfather, it's 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 not an exaggeration, man. <sighs> okay, but l let's just be clear here. The first uh, skeptical podcast was aired January seven, two thousand and seven. So, in other words, you already started uh, late uh, two thousand six. Now, um, okay, we're we're actually a few weeks on overtime for the birthday, but um, let's uh, let's check out what it sounded like. This is you introducing the first Skeptical Show. I'm Alex Sakaris, and I'm going to be your host, at least on this first episode of the show. I say that because one of the purposes of this first episode is to find other like-minded people who want to join the Skeptico team. First, let me tell you what Skeptico is all about. There's a problem today with the way science gets reported, the way it gets packaged and delivered, and most of all, the way it gets filtered by a few loud voices that seem to dominate the conversation. Now, I'm coming at this perspective as a non-scientist, a computer guy, a guy who dug into the science behind some of the biggest new discoveries of our time and was pretty amazed at what I found. Take, for example, our guest on this episode, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick. Here's a top-notch scientist, a guy who received his Ph.D. at Cambridge and has spent the last 25 years doing experiments, publishing peer-reviewed papers, and doing all the stuff that good scientists do. Very, very impressive stuff. The only problem with Dr. Sheldrick's work is what he's discovered, namely that there's a field of awareness or memory that permeates our consciousness, and that this field explains things like telepathy. Now, as soon as you mention something like telepathy or psychic phenomena or God or reincarnation, a lot of scientific people immediately shut down or go on the attack without ever looking at the data without ever engaging in intelligent dialogue. And that's something we hope to change on this show. With your help, and with the help of scientific experts on both sides of these issues, we're going to create an open, honest, intelligent discussion about new scientific discoveries, especially those that go against what the mainstream media is willing to give serious attention to. Yeah, I guess this was so long ago, it was before your voice had cracked. <laughs> but but you, we can hear, hear your intentions. And man, you actually achieved what you set out to do. This is the evidence. We just heard what you said. Now, before we, we comment upon anything further, I also want to play a couple of other clips uh, where you describe how it all started. And by the way, folks, when I play back clips of 
previous of all skeptical stuff, I've speeded up for practical reasons. So he, he doesn't talk that <laughs> quick and hectic uh, as it sounds. Uh, it's, it's just for practicality. But let's uh, hear how you, because there was this dude, personal friend of you, I think, who managed to squeeze you for the same thing I managed to now, namely to get you to show up to, uh, I think it was like a 200 show anniversary. Yes. And it was very useful. Uh, you basically said everything there is to say back then. The difference between now and then, of course, is you have much, much time behind you. So, of course, you have uh, further perspectives. And we're going to get back to that. But let's just hear what you said in show, I think it was show 200, about how it all started. This is like Alex's version of what we heard Shelrick say. Well, you know, I started out as a listener. I've always been very interested in not only these topics, but in general, in the idea that I can learn, I can get better, I can improve by absorbing the knowledge from other people. So I was a listener and I became quite interested in the whole idea of parapsychology and uh, kind of paranormal phenomena just at a very casual level, like anyone who watches TV. That eventually led me to Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, who is guest number one of Skeptico. And the conversation I had with Rupert was along the lines of, hey, this is interesting. Why isn't anyone talking about this in a serious way, interviewing these researchers and analyzing what they have to say versus what people who oppose them have to say? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, we ought to make that happen. And I'm willing to fund this. You know, let's hire somebody to go do the show. And that was really how it started is I was going to fund a show because I'm not a producer of any sort and I'm not a radio guy or anything like that. Well, we went down that path and I asked Rupert for suggestions of who might be good for the show. And, and that kind of played out. And it's like so many things you hear about, you know, there wasn't anybody. So I stepped in and, and to do it. And after a couple shows, really, I was pretty well hooked on doing it. And I was hooked on the fact that if I tried to subcontract this out, it wouldn't really fit what I was looking for. I wouldn't get the questions that I want asked and answered. Those wouldn't come on the table because everyone does bring a different perspective to these things. So that's really how it all started. And a quick one about his personal motives. You know what I've said repeatedly to people, and I've had to say it so that I can remind myself of it and, and gain as much humility as I can, and that's that this is my journey. You know, this is my little trick. This Skeptico show and the opportunity to provide this on the internet and iTunes and thousands of people and all that, hey, man, that's just a little trick, so I get to call these people up and talk to them. Because if I just call them up and talk to them, no one would talk to me. So the idea of a show and a regular schedule and a continuation of it or anything like that is just, for me, an outgrowth of this desire to talk to folks. And so those are just the, that's just a vehicle that allows me to keep talking to the people I want to talk about. It's just, I'm just on this journey. Yeah, indeed, I can relate to that as a podcaster myself. I mean, it's pretty close to my own motives. That plus free books, of course. <laughs> yeah, so so you pretty clearly said it there. By the way, that uh, anniversary show, 200, um, there was this uh, friend of yours who who lured you into that, right? Tim Dilley, yes. Right, right. And I really recommend that for, for people, uh, although <laughs> most of it you're going to hear today. 
but it was it's re- really clarifying, very interesting to get a deep, well, a peek behind the curtain uh, of the show. But here we have it. I think uh, one of the very clear things that comes off here is, you know, the sincerity you went into the matter with. And with your eyes on the balls. Today, people start podcasts because they want to make money or they want to make a name for themselves or whatever, right? Or propaganda is for something. So it's pretty rare the way you incepted it. And, and so early. I can't get over how early out you were. Yeah. That alone is a kudos. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, also play a clip here about... Uh, one of the key things about Skeptical in, in some ways, at least when it comes to production, I have some views on this, um, but um, let's see what you say about it. So there are a lot of business rules or, or lessons that I've learned that I think inform my decisions in Skeptico. And one of those is that this idea that do what you love and the money will follow is really a load of crap. I, mean, I don't think that's true. And I think the way that applies to podcasting is if I wanted to apply my time and my mental resources towards increasing capital, I wouldn't do it by podcasting. Not to say that some people haven't found a way to monetize it and stuff like that, but I, I don't. That's not one, that's not my goal. And two, I don't think it's a very good way to make money. But it's not my goal. It's it's not what this thing's about. So so that you said already uh, then, and we're going to fast forward to a much more recent, I think it's a mesh of different comments, but this is a more recent. And I, I want to play that back to back with that 200 show comment, because people, if they pay attention they'll see that you are really reiterating the idealism, that it's all about seeking more ways to get the word out to... I mean, it's all about the subject, the matter. Not about you, not about money. And this is... And and when people make books, for example, often you hear this, ah, he's just making a book to make money. Of course, nobody ever made money from books in modern times. but, But even here, you'll see... It's all about the focus. My book is done. Why science is wrong about almost everything is done. It's out. It's printed. It's here on my desk. And with the announcement of the book, I, of course, want to thank all of you for the help and support that you've given me with the Skeptical Project that's led to this book and also for many of the ideas that have really been formulated through my interaction with you. I have to tell you, one of the things I'm most excited about with the book is using it as a vehicle to connect with more people. It's always exciting to be able to share what I've learned, to share some of this new science, and I've already begun to do that. I've completed a couple of interviews on the book, and they've been great, and it's so fun to talk to people who've never heard about some of this stuff before and expose it to them for the first time. Just like I said a minute ago, that's really working out. I have several more scheduled, and I wanted to reach out to all of you. If you know of other outlets where I can go on and talk about this book and get these ideas out there, please let me know. I'm particularly keen to talk to groups that might not be initially super receptive, but might be able to find some points of synergy where we could kind of shoehorn our, our way in there. 
I really would like to talk to skeptics about the book. I'd love to talk to mainstream science types. Love to talk to mainstream media types. And I'd love to talk to atheists, of course, and Christians, and all sorts of folks. If you have any ideas along those lines, or if you're a blogger, a podcaster, or have those kind of connections, let me know. That's just going to be exciting to me, and it's going to be fun to get that out there. And as I do get that out there and go through that process, I want to let you know that I've set up a website to more or less chronicle that journey of the rollout of the book and talking to these different groups. Join me in this new, slightly different path that I'm embarking on. So as you probably know from listening to this podcast, I really enjoy these interviews. I gain so much by talking to all these really interesting people. And then I really enjoy bringing it to you and getting your feedback and growing in that way. One of the things I regret is that I wish I could do more. I do one every two weeks. Sometimes I sneak another one in there and you'll always hear me lamenting about, wow, you know, I wish I could get more out, but it just gets to be a lot less fun to try and crank out one a week. I don't know how some people do it. I mean, between the lining up guests, booking guests, interviewing, editing, transcribing, doing all that, it becomes like a job. And I don't want Skeptico to be a job. But I do want to bring more content out. I think there's a lot of information in these topics that we cover that I'd like to see shared more and brought into the dialogue about what's going on with consciousness, spirituality, skepticism, and science around these topics that we talk about. So that's why I've kind of redesigned the website to make it more one shareable, but also more open to other kinds of information and content beyond just these interviews that I do. I'd like you to help me find more content and help me publish more content. There's some really, really bright skeptical people out there. There's some really good writers, a lot better writers than I am. So let's kind of combine forces. Let's find a way for you to help me bring more content through the Skeptico website to people who are interested in this content. Again, as before, there's no advertising on the site. There's no money-making possibility for this site. It's just outflow of money from me for the server and all the rest of that stuff, which is fine. It's not a huge expense. And the real goal is just to get this information out there and to further this dialogue about these topics. Okay, so look, man, this is crucial because I'm not sure you are aware of it from your own position because it's always easier to see clearly other outside than yourself. But the fact that Skeptico is completely non-commercial, you just, like you said, you're just spending money on it. <laughs> you want to avoid it becoming a job. I can relate to that. In fact, twice I've seriously considered stopping podcasting. Understand. Uh, so I want you to say something about how you avoided. I mean, how can you go for 15 years and not getting tired of it? Um, I mean, I suspect I know the answer, but you'll get to answer that. But I would just want to say that the fact that you have never had any focus on money, not just from the lack of greed position. I mean, you didn't have to, right? I mean, most people have to. Yes. But I think that has brought a particular, um, how you say it in English, not a standard, but uh, a, a quality, an honesty that is very hard. At least even people who are relying on, let alone advertisement, but just like me, who get listeners paying me, 
Okay, I'm not having the big corporation breathing down my neck, but I have some kind of populism demand that I have to cater to. You don't have to. Still, you're trying to engage with people all the time, and you are, and we're going to talk more about that. But I, I think it's so important for the, for the integrity, I think is the word I'm looking for, the integrity of this skeptical journey. Comment? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to come out too far because I could go in a million, million different directions. You know, I really used to, to kind of, again, jump three steps ahead, and then we can maybe fill it in. Sure, sure. I always reference this, but I remember hearing Shirley MacLaine many years ago say, we're all entertainers. And she's talking, and she is known for kind of being at the forefront of presenting some very cutting edge information about uh, spirit traveling and all sorts of different kind of stuff, which is very serious stuff and very in keeping with extended consciousness stuff. And she's really pushed on that. And she says, look, we're all entertaining each other, which seems to diminish her message. And then I was very resistant to that. I'm like, no, damn it. I'm not about entertainment. I'm about truth seeking <laughs> and sharing that truth with other people who are truth seeking. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, I've come to understand the other part of it too, which is that <laughs> on a very uh, spiritual level, we're all here to entertain each other. We're all here to be that light, you know, to have that light that is always there to come through us and to reach other people. And the only way to do that is to tell the truth. You can't do that if you're if you're lying or faking. But the other thing is you do have to along the way, entertaining people is not a bad thing. So I'm not against that. I'm just not very good at that. I find myself much more comfortable with just being direct. And uh, yeah. I, I think I've turned off a ton. I know I've turned off a ton of people <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, over the years. And, and but that's got to be that's got to be okay. With regard to quitting, I've thought about it many times. I think about it all the time. All the time. And it's like, all the time. Oh, not I shouldn't say all the time. That's an exaggeration. But I think that's part of the yoga process. That's part of the ice mm. bath process. You know, it's like, mm. the reason I get in that 35 degree water multiple times a week or in the ocean when it's cold enough multiple times a week is because I don't want to do it. It's like the guy who wrote the book, that <laughs> yeah, Marine, yeah. he said, and you know, it's an obnoxious thing to say, but he's jogging in the rain and some woman rolls down her window and says, why are you doing this? Some fat woman drinking a, a Coke and eating French fries says, why are you doing yeah. that, honey? And he says, I'm doing it because you're fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's obnoxious and I don't want to be obnoxious, but I understand the vibe. I'm doing it because I know this is what my soul needs. Mm. Maybe your soul needs something different, but my soul needs the truth and needs for me to be actively engaged in seeking the truth. So, you know, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's my kind of thing. I would use the word infotainment in, in uh, both you and my, my case rather than entertainment, but yeah, because inadvertently it gets entertaining now and then, uh, especially when we're going to get back to that, the more um, confrontational shows. But uh, no, this is interesting because, yeah, it's 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 a part of your yogi work, isn't it? Part of yeah. that journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, the non-dual. It's the non-dual thing. You know, why are yeah. any of us doing anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what are so then that and this, brings this this is meaningful. I mean, this is me. You don't need attention. You don't need the money. You don't even need the connections. But it's what you get out of doing the show. It's what everybody pretends 
is their driving force, but in your case it actually is, and it has two results. Like you say, it will put off lots of people. One of the reasons, just one, there's other more evident reasons too, but one of the reasons is people aren't that interested in truth. But the other thing is that it will also, some people who, to use a cliche, vibrates at that frequency, will recognize this because you're seeking the truth, but to seek the truth, you have to be honest. You have to live in truth as much as we can. And that comes through, that you are a sincere seeker. And I think that's key. It's the, it's a, it's the same thing that puts some people off, that makes others recognize, like, this is the real thing, this, this is integrity. You understand what I mean? I, I do, and that's super nice and complimentary, but the other part of but it- But it's true. Well, it, it, it's true, but there's another part of it too, and that that's that I'm wrong a lot, and I have been wrong a lot, and people were probably rightfully uh, kind of put off by me because they were right and I was wrong. So you got to keep yeah, you got to keep not, it real. Yeah, um, that's that not way. the most. No, no, no. That's not the usual reason people are put off by you. That they were right and you were wrong and you were arrogant about it. And later, uh, I mean, one thing is that you actually admit when you're wrong. People can't even handle doing that. <laughs> well, so you are honest about evolving, right? You know, I mean, I, I do, I, I do kind of, I, I agree with you because I don't want to kind of be fronting, you know, like I'm, th th because I'll tell you what, I, I genuinely like, and I, I, I've met other people who are like this. You are like this when we've spoken, you know what? Mm -hmm. and no one likes to be wrong. I don't like to be wrong, but I kind of like to be wrong. I kind of like to be, I kind of like when somebody really shows me mm -hmm. where I'm off course, because then it allows me to get on course. Exactly. You know, I was just editing an interview today that I'm doing with a guy and it was on the whole agenda 21, 2030, great reset. And I gotta say going into it, I was a little bit yada yada, you know, come on. And at the end of it, I was like, no, this guy's really done the work and he's there in Missoula, Montana, and there are the laws and they're on the books. And I'm like, boom, you know, mm. course correction for me. Mm. I love that. Mm. I, I, I might look a little bit silly in that, you know, I didn't kind of know it going in, but gosh, what a, what a gift to know stuff that you didn't know. Yeah, that's because, again, it goes back to, this is why it was so important, uh, I think, to play those clips, because it goes back to the fact that there's no ego in uh, the source of your work or of, in your quest. I'm not saying you don't have an ego. Of course you do. And and that ego probably ticks some people off. I, I think that's better to say. And the dead honesty, because you're not supposed to, especially now in this cancel culture taboo, nobody can handle anything, let alone an honest conversation uh, where, where the eyes are at the ball and not at the player. Yes. So you lose out just for the culture. But that's what I mean. It's uh, when you are seeking truth. Of course, you want to learn something new because we don't know. Everybody doesn't know everything. So I can I exactly know what you mean when you discover that. But the reason most people don't want, like to be wrong is because they invested their ego in something. There was a tribal thing. And now they're exposed and then they feel embarrassed as they should because the ego should never get in, in in the first place. But we can go off on this tangent forever. But but it's uh, I think it's just important that people notice it there. Uh, by the way, you mentioned your book. Uh, I suppose we should also bring light to the fact that you have you have made two books per today. 
um, as a result of the skeptical journey. Yes. Why science is wrong about almost everything and why evil matters. How science and religion fumbled a big one. Yeah, or the big one. But both these books are... The interesting thing, the format of the books, it's they are actually like a literary version of your show. You are putting in stuff from the show there and going through. But they also reflect different periods, and we're going to get back to that too. It's going to be a lot of we're going to get back to it today, folks, if you want. Yeah. But yeah. they both reflect different periods of your show, like... Uh, and, and I'm going to expose in detail because I've analyzed it. So I know now you have four eras of skeptical. We're still at era one. So it's a bit early to bed, but let's just take it now since the books are up. Uh, and the evil book is uh, from, yeah, it's between era three and four as I've analyzed it. But I want to ask you, do you think there will be a new book like that in the future? And if so, can you venture a guess at the topic? Or is that too early? No, I'd really like to do a book on Christianity and religion. And I think it's just, I just discovered a couple of really interesting things and I've shared them all on the show as many times as I can. I think people get tired of it, but I think it's fundamental, fundamental to what I keep bumping into. Damn, man. You're going to, I mean, that's opening a can of worms. If you're going to do that, don't be biased, uh, because you've had a, a particular angle. Uh, I don't know if it's deliberate, but it's from the guests you have, like uh, the one angle is Jesus never existed. I'm on the other camp. Not only did he exist, but the historical Jesus was a super interesting guy. You know what? Get the book. It's probably expensive and rare, but, but you can handle that. Get the book called a, a Search for the Historical Jesus. It's not the only one I would recommend that gives you another angle into it, but it's a good one. Uses a lot of rare yeah, sources. You, you mentioned that, you, you mentioned that last time when we yep. were talking and I, I glanced at it and yep. I, I think I've, I've covered a lot of that material. I'm, I'm happy to go through it again and to dive into it again. I think when we get to that part of the, this conversation, to me, the missing piece there that just derails everything, and it almost derailed our conversation right here, mm -hmm. is that when you approach it like I just did, and I, I just forget sometimes, because you can't give people a 10-minute speech, but no. I'm all about Christ consciousness. I'm all about people having a personal, when people talk about, Christians talk about, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I go right on to that. That makes total sense to me. As a matter of fact, all the 500 shows I've done suggest that there is an extended consciousness realm, and in that extended consciousness realm, you can, and many people report, have a relationship with Jesus. That seems to be the data. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I really don't. I don't know what that means. But that's the data if I'm going to be fair. So when I say about that, I'm not really not talking. I, I, I'm really not talking in the way that most people get offended by their faith. What I'm talking about is fucking Josephus is a psyop. <laughs> and if we can't, if we can't, it's like so many of these things, if we crack them, then the whole thing looks different. Yeah. If there is such a thing as social engineering, and if religion has been for the longest time the centerpiece, the prize, the fulcrum point for that, then we better freaking focus on that until we really have a handle on it. The same thing with, you know, back when we were talking about the skeptics and that, if the goal really was to derail 
that understanding that we are more than biologic robots in a meaningless universe, if that really was the goal, and if and if James Randi, who really had the tremendous influence, unbelievable tremendous influence, yeah. and if he really was a CIA cutout, which is how it looks when you really put all the pieces back together, hmm. then that looks totally different. Now the yeah. whole thing looks totally different. And I love Rupert Sheldrick, and he's an awesome person, but he's got to get to that point too. And he's got to either say, well, that's bullshit, you know, or he's got to say, wow, that has some, that has some real possibility that does make me think differently about what I live through. It's like you and I've had this conversation again to I'm busting up your thing here and jumping ahead, but the conversation you and I had were about Gloria Steinem and, you know, Gloria Steinem comes, she's the woman's movement. She's responsible for the woman's movement. Key figure, right? Well, she's CIA. But then what a lot of people don't realize, it's not like she was running the women's movement and then the CIA approached her. Nah, 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 nah. She was CIA. And they said, <laughs> why don't you go do the women's movement? Mm. So can you really look at the women's movement and not factor that in you have to no, you so can't. the same thing that's what i'm saying about christianity if you don't lead with the potential that that is an example of social engineering that is an example of a psyop that is an example of a way to control yeah, all religions are man all religions all religions yeah. are because it's a why wouldn't you it's just a slam dunk it's a business deal but but it's funny because now you understand why my slogan is paradigm expansion because you've been describing paradigm shifts here because that's what happens when you get that missing piece suddenly the whole puzzle looks different right exactly but um, i would say um, about what you just said yeah jesus can still be an egregore even if people meet him so that's not evidence in my book that's some people meet him i mean people can meet the spaghetti monster it doesn't mean it's actually out there. well but there's two ways to spin that and you know, I just re-listened to the excellent series of shows you did on egregores, and I learned a lot because that hasn't really been a focus of mine. Mm. But when you when you really look at that whole way of thinking about extended consciousness and that we are co-creators of reality, kind of thing, then I think it's and you look at the the flexibility that there must be in space time. You know, and again, back to the core thing of that's what, that's one of the implications of Rupert Sheldrick's work. That's certainly a direct implication of Dean Radin's work. Mm. They're proving it experimentally, Six Sigma results, Dean Radin, that no dog time space is not what you think. So as soon as you do that, then the whole, that also throws a lot of gum in the whole historical Jesus 2000 years ago, this <laughs> happened, then this happened. And do you know this guy? Yeah, I just have to loosen up on a lot of that stuff. Hmm. Okay, man, we have to move on. I have to be strict with the clock here. Uh, we have other topics to cover. But uh, here's an important one we can um, mention. And this clip is on the community and skeptical forum. The forum was actually started by a skeptical listener. And he just, he's a guy who stepped forward and said, hey, let me run a forum for a skeptic. And I was like, great. Which is, you know, one of the things that has always been in the back of my mind about Skeptico is this idea of a community project, not just me, but people who are interested in these topics often don't have a lot of other outlets. 
I love to engage with those people and get them involved in the the project that is Skeptico. So at the same time, I've never been involved in a forum before I was involved in Skeptico. So I don't really know. I've had to learn myself what that interaction is like and and really how you relate to people and how all that evolves. But for me, it's been a tremendous experience. And I've learned so much from people who've engaged with me in the forum and either have ideas or you get into these long, sometimes lengthy back and forth. And I've grown tremendously from the forum. And besides, I've gotten a lot of ideas for guests from the forum as well, which by the way, I value greatly. And I really appreciate those folks who come to the Skeptical Forum and share their ideas. Many folks have told me that it's one of the most intelligent, thoughtful forums that they've encountered on the web. I tend to agree. I've gained so much out of it. If you haven't, I hope you'll take this new opportunity to check it out. Amen and hallelujah. I'm so impressed by that forum, even though I, one of the few to, I mean, I've been, I've been lurking there. I've been reading. I, I don't have time to engage in forums. I did manage to be sucked in <laughs> to some uh, shill for the insurance industry. I had, had a back and forth with him. But in general, I'd say the skeptical forum is much more important uh, to your project than mine. I have a forum. I mean, <laughs> My show is called Forum. But if you put up my forum and your forum next to each other, mine looks like an orphanage. <laughs> whereas whereas yours is like a super effective university. Uh, we both have managed to get intelligent people on board. I say that. Right. Uh, but uh, it's still a feat that... And, and, and the, your forum is informing, I think, your show, at least historically it is, much more than my forum is mine. A comment to the forum and the community? It's the forum, just like I, I just said there, I kind of repeat all that. Yep. It, it kind of, I would say, the, one of the frustrations I have for me is it kind of, you know, wanes and rises and people come and leave. And I, I have people I've met that I have these deep relationships with and even relationships with outside of the forum. Eventually it grows into that and then they go away, you know, and that's totally fine. I get that. You should be able to just go away. It's no longer yeah. useful to you or you're thinking of something else. But I, I'm always a little bit surprised and a little bit, you know, like, hey, man, how come you're not, <laughs> how come you're not coming along? You had so many good ideas. And the other thing is, mm. there's different styles that you have to adjust to. On the forum, what I like to do is share information. Hey, I saw this link. What do you think of this? I saw this. And a lot of people like to share more personal kind of and, and I, I try and kind of, I, I sometimes get frustrated with that, but that people have a need an outlet. And now, you know, with the last couple of years going on, it's like, but there's a lot of other places also that people go and, and share stuff. So it, it, over time, it yeah. changes. Plus, plus remember, w I mean, when did you start the forum? Yeah, I mean, a as lot soon of, as the show? A lot of years ago. I mean, it's, I don't know. It probably. But, yeah, but was it very recent after you started the show? Yeah, within a couple of years. That makes sense because I don't know if you remember this and I can't pinpoint when it was. I think it was, may have been 2012 or something, but at some point, because internet was full of forums. Right. Then at some point, all the forums went empty. Yeah. Facebook sucked right. up everything at the same time. Right, right. It was global. Right. Except I think France or, or Russia, some stubborn places where they have their own 
kind of internet they had back then. So you remember the same thing, right? And that hurt. Oh, yeah. So that your forums even survived that is is pretty interesting because people just stopped using. Of course, now it's the opposite. Now people are emigrating from Facebook, except the geriatrics. But there was a period you, there. You know what's interesting? You know what's interesting? Just kind of in this little tidbit way, mm. this historical phase mm. here. There, there were a bunch of people that broke off of the forum and started their own forum because they weren't happy with. Yeah. Where I was, I forget what exactly the the beef was, but oh, it was probably skeptics, wasn't it? No, no, no. It was, oh. uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to be skeptical of. Uh, yeah, it was really kind of parapsychology kind of people who didn't think. Okay, I forget exactly. But the wasn't it? Wasn't it a listener who, who uh, to begin with, uh, did this? It wasn't you. Yeah, Stefan. So, so he started it, and then eventually a group kind of broke off, and I think they didn't like the i think they were still engaged in the skeptical versus parrot they wanted to continue the you know skeptical 1.0 yeah, exactly mm. you know that there is there are these things called skeptics and they have a scientific point of view and then there's these other people you know who have a different point of view and it's bullshit it's rubbish yeah, yeah, skeptics yeah. really don't have a point of view they have an agenda you know it's kind of like we're finding and that's why i say that i said at the very beginning to tip the hand the pandemic brings that into focus right so now you look at the pandemic and you go well that was never science to begin with yeah. and you go oh but then why did they do it like that oh it was a pandemic right, right. well the, the same is true like so if you go all the way back like we're talking about uh richard wiseman and Rupert Sheldrick and dogs that know. Can I go off on that story a little bit? Uh, no, uh, wait a minute, okay. because because uh, yes, uh, but not now. It's coming. Okay, and I want you to to account for that. Yeah, but um, uh, let me just say though that remember my my allegory last time we we had a regular show about the mountaintop. Remind me. Yeah, I've been to the mountaintop, rather. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> you know, when when uh, you start by the foot of the mountain, there's a million people running around and flirting right. in different paths, right? The higher right. up you go, the more the path shrinks. Well, right. it's easy to start by the foot of the mountain and say, hey, folks, yeah, I'm going on a truth quest. Who will join me? Everyone. Yay! <laughs> yeah, right? So right. in the beginning, you're a huge congregation. <laughs> Right. But the higher up you come, the more people will fall off <laughs> because you're so determined to get to the mountaintop. You're not being lured from all sorts of distractions on the way that most people do. They lose their head, whatever. So, of course, you're going to lose folks. But as you progress, you're also going to meet someone. Oh, what, what are you coping around here for? Oh, well, I was looking for the path uh, up. Well, you made it this far. Join me and, and, and we'll go higher. So you, you pick up people on, on this skeptical journey away. That's my uh, adjusted metaphor from, from the one I used in the end of the year show. But you know what? We have to move on. That is an awesome, awesome metaphor. Uh, allegory. Yeah, okay. Let's move on because there's another thing that people are not so aware of. And that's the experiments. I have another brief update for you. If you recall, 
On the last episode of Skeptico, we talked a little bit about the Global Consciousness Project and how we've gotten involved with that a little bit. One of the other projects that regular listeners will know that we've been involved with for a long time is some of the research of Dr. Rupert Sheldrick. His research has been fascinating to me, and I've always admired his clear thinking, his forthrightness, and his willingness to, I guess, buck the critics. He's certainly taken his share of criticism for really nothing else than just uh, expressing unconventional ideas. And as you know, that's not the way science is supposed to work. So a couple of years ago, I got involved with Dr. Sheldrick and tried to help with the dogs that know experiment. Now, in the process of working on that experiment, I had a chance to correspond with uh, Dr. Sheldrick many times over the last year or two and have found him to be a very busy guy, but a very open guy and, and very willing to support other people getting involved in his research. And for that reason, I most recently have kind of picked up on another project that he's been involved with, and that's the telephone telepathy experiment. And I'm in the very beginning stages of trying to help Dr. Sheldrick put together a website that would automate the process of telephone telepathy testing. That's a tongue twister. So you were very good at your timing. It was, <laughs> it was the next uh, topic I had. But look... I know you run Psy Experiment. You mentioned here the global consciousness thing, and then it's the dog things that you wanted to mention. So, because you picked up so many listeners who weren't with you back then, so I want you to, to account for these experiments you were flirting with, which is also pretty unique, uh, you know, associated with the podcast. Yeah, it's funny. That freaking Al, you're unbelievable. <laughs> I, I had totally forgotten about all this, but yeah, I was... <laughs> There you go. I was just... 15 years, like, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, so the dogs didn't know, just to recap for people, well, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick started getting letters. He's a biologist, and he's interested in animals, and he started getting letters. He had proposed this idea of morphic, uh, morphic fields that carry information and that can explain a lot of psychic phenomena and people said hey maybe that explains the fact that my dog knows when i'm coming home and he started getting a lot of these letters so he decided to investigate it seriously scientifically and he ran an experiment a series of experiments it's not a difficult experiment to do if you're a cambridge biologist and you're smart about science mm. you know you put a video camera on the dog you put a video camera on the owner you send the owner out and then you call the owner and you say come on home and you see if the dog reacts right so he had done a series of experiments and uh, the story I was going to tell before, and I'll, I'll make that one short so I can get to the other one about the experiments, is he had done these experiments and published them. And then there was this quote unquote skeptic, Richard Wiseman, who was kind of like, I guess you'd say like a Neil deGrasse Tyson of England at the mm. time, at least the most public, the most out front, you know, being interviewed by all the TV stations and all that about radio. And his qualifications was as a dating coach psychologist. <laughs> well, his, poly, his, poly, his qualifications were legit, you know. But anyways, he came in and he that said... That was his work prior to this. <laughs> he came in and, and, and he... One thing that really got Sheldrick in, for a good reason, Sheldrick, again, this open spirit of, of inquiry... 
allowed Wiseman to use his whole video camera setup and the whole experimental setup, you know, yeah, which yeah. again, it's, it's nice, but he certainly didn't have to do that. He'd like, look, if you want to test this, go test it on your own. But no, he gave him the whole thing. He went in there and totally changed the protocols. He faked it. He deceived people, Wiseman did, and he rigged it so that the thing didn't come out the way that it was. And to, to give people just a little bit of the background on that, it's like what, Sheldrick's experiment was predicated on the idea that the dog was demonstrating this waiting behavior when the owner was coming home. And he defined what the waiting behavior is. It's going by the window. So it's pretty easy. Is he by the window? Is he not by the window? You know? Mm arbitrarily, Richard Wiseman came in and said, no, 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 no. I'm only going to count it if the dog goes over to the window and stays there for two minutes, at least two minutes. That's the only time it counts. And then he went and got a negative, a null result, and he published his work. And Sheldrick was like, wait a minute, maybe the dog smelled something over there and was distracted and went off for five seconds and came right back to the window. Doesn't it still count? No, 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 no. Arbitrarily, hmm. it has to be two minutes. So, I, I say that level of detail. Changing the criteria after it started, it's it's exactly. horrific. And I'm getting into that level of detail because that's what I did on Skeptical. I had hours and hours and hours of explaining just how deceptive this was. Mm. But after Sheldrick had done the experiment, I was like, well, hell, again, naive, but like, I'll, I'll let's do it. Let's replicate it. Let's just replicate the crap out of it. Because now I'm pissed off, you know, that now this is clearly scientific deception. I'm pissed off. I'm like, let's replicate this. So I tried to replicate it. I hired, again, I put some money at the University of Florida. This guy was really, uh, he was doing research with canines, with dogs. And we set it up and did that. And we got some results, but his heart wasn't really in it. He was a skeptic. And I, in the show, I document all those times that we did it and stuff like that. He's not a bad guy, but not really playing it straight up. So I said, okay, I'll do it myself. And I actually, you can still find online on YouTube. I found some woman with a dog in California that I think from the video clearly demonstrates that waiting when they're coming home behavior. But it, it does take a little bit more effort than just me remotely part-time running an experiment like that. I spent a considerable amount of time and effort, bought cameras, uh, computers, interviewed people, tried to elicit people to do that. Yeah, I heard in one show you even offered to send a computer to someone. Buy them a computer. I did send. I Jesus. sent. Uh, I sent probably ten computers out. <laughs> hey, I, I, hey! I volunteered to pretend to do an experiment. Send me a laptop. <laughs> I had somebody. You know what? This is before I was into. I hope they didn't take advantage. <laughs> well, it's funny because again, you know, you talk about the four phases, it, it, and I don't know what your four phases are, but one of the phases where I am firmly at now, just because it's the accumulation, is that there is. The, it's about energy and it's about positive light energy and negative energy and the dark energy. And I don't fully understand that dark energy, but I have come to accept that it's real and it really is very troubling for people. One of the computers that I gave away, I always remember this, this woman called me from a Craigslist ad and said, Oh yeah, I'll do, I got a dog who does that, mm -hmm. you know, da da da. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'll go, I'll bring the computer over and show you how to set it up. Al, I walked into this little apartment in Ocean Beach, and there was a group of people there, and it was one of the few times in my life where I just felt a darkness. 
just oh, wow. a darkness come over. And these people, they were all kind of shady on the doing drugs and stuff like that. Right. But it's like, I just wanted to get the hell out of there as quickly as I could. And Poor dog. The only other the only other place I've felt that energy like that uh-huh. is in a prison in Yuma, ah. Arizona, an old 1890s prison that you can still tour. And there's this one right. blackened room where they used to hold people in isolation. Right. And that's, I wasn't there when I was doing the dogs that know experience. No, no, that no, was not no. on my radar. No, no. And no. it is now. Yeah. Interesting. But uh, that wasn't the only experiment. We just heard the soy thing and, and, and global. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was anything. I was laid, right? It's like, I just thought that would solve it. I thought that would fix it. I thought that would, like Rupert was saying. Okay, okay. The, that goes for your motivation. But but uh, did you, I mean. Naivete, you should say. Yeah, uh, <laughs> naivete. But, but did you involve others too? Or was it you doing it from your home? Or how, how did this work? Oh, anyone who would do, yeah, I, I hired some people along the way, you know, kind of part-time people, but. Actually hired them. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But not not a huge thing. Yeah, and didn't you pay a skeptic researcher? What's it? I think you even paid a skeptic researcher. I think you mentioned that to me no, once. No, no, because that, that was just, I mean, at that point, it doesn't take long to really see the foolishness of the skeptics. I mean, they were just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to them. Yeah. We're going to get to them soon. But, but I think you involved a researcher at some point. I can't remember. Squeeze your, your brain cells now. I think oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the guy at Florida. Yeah, the guy at University of Florida. Right. Yeah. No, no, yeah. It, it, he wasn't a skeptic per se. He was just part of academia, so he was by definition yeah. of that paradigm, like he used to say. He just had a completely different paradigm, mm. but he was willing to take a little bit of money and do the, do the thing. And the Global Consciousness Project, is that the... Is that the Dean Radin stuff? No, what's yes. that again? Yeah. That's where they have the little random number right. generator kind of thingies. Right. And that's this Psy experiment mentioned, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm. Well, at least you walked as you talked. <laughs> it's not many who can, who can claim to have done this. I think this is, is uh, kudos for, for trying it out. Okay, let's move on. Now people are aware of it. Uh, I have another fun little clip for you. Alex, my man, the humble stoner host of the Higher Side Chats, Greg Carlwood here, toasting you to one hell of a 15-year podcasting ride of excellence that you've been on. Very few folks can say they've been podcasting for 15 years, so kudos to you. I can't remember exactly what the first Skeptico episode I heard was, but I've obviously appreciated you for years. Early interviews with Rupert Sheldrake were so great to have found. Of course, my favorite ones are the confrontational ones. You are a master at that. And hey, the truth is the truth. Let's get at it. And if a person is not going to factor consciousness into their scientific work or their model of reality, then of what value is it really? Just as any true analysis of power or historic events or business has to factor in conspiracy, or it's probably grossly inaccurate. Well, you hold people to these points with extreme consistency, and it's a beautiful thing. Plus, I love the range of guest reactions to a little bit of that classic skeptico pressure. It tells you a lot about a person. But that said, we have definitely had some great times going out for lunch and talking shop. You've always been great on and off the air. And cheers to another 15 years of podcasting glory, if the gods will it. 
You're one of the greats. I'm lucky to know you. Yeah, that was the very brilliant Greg Callwood from the Hyasar Chats. I must say, I mean, even this little, uh, this little ad break, ad feature that he, it's so professional. Yeah. <laughs> Either that guy's a natural born genius or he spends a lot of energy making it right. I mean, to, to get very good products. And that's one of the things, you know, I've, I've complained about this before, right? That so many podcasters, they're so lazy and, they don't give a damn and yeah. they don't think. Actually, you are kind of among them. You don't spend too much energy on getting the shape of it, but you spend all that good energy on the content and the goals. At least you have that. And you bother with having a little jingle and now you start with the movie clip. So, so I can't, I can't really spank you too much about this, but there's so many who are just. They just don't give it. Even if there's a 20-second gap of silence, they don't even edit that out. Now, Greg, on the other hand, maybe this is one of the keys to his success because he's one one of the more successful in this area. I think what little I've heard from him, I haven't heard that much, but you can't avoid hearing THC. (laughs) What little I've heard, such a good um, production. And he even makes his own music. Anyway, you and him go back uh, some years, don't you? Yes. And it was super... So where on the journey did you become... Because one of the things... This clip goes to show that you... I I call you the godfather. One of the reasons is not just that you were early out, but that you're such a spider. You connect with so many people. You know everyone who is anyone in this field. I know you live in the same town as Greg. So how long do you go back and how did you guys discover each other? I don't know exactly how far back we go, but... Um, I reached out to Greg. I thought he was doing just great stuff. And, you know, I was I was a fan. Mm. And we connected just on a bunch of different levels. It was super great to hear him there. And I've been on his show a couple times. And, you know, it's just it's just cool. It's fun to to connect like what we're doing here. This is so sweet of you to do all this stuff. I mean, it's so great. <laughs> I, oh, you're such a guy. But anyways, it's you realize how unique it is to find people that coalesce on you know these kind of topics and these kind of issues. So it wasn't hard; it was very natural, because mm. he is a he is a truth seeker. You know, he is yeah. a freaking truth seeker. I mean, he's right there with me on the skeptical journey. Mm. Like he said, he raised well many good points. Some of them we touched already, but he mentioned one important thing that we're finally going to get to. He said that one of his favorite things were your confrontations <laughs> with the skeptics. You remember what I, was, I said, right? I said, uh, of the, let's say of the skeptical 1-0 and 2-0, the most entertaining shows there is uh, when you go head-to-head with one of these dense figures. Whereas the more maybe enlightening shows are when you have a so-called friendly interview. But that's my assessment. Now... Uh, let's hear how you describe uh, on the fanatical pseudo-skeptics. Those are like two different universes. I mean, one of the things that Skeptico did, again, because I came in this from the outside, I saw naturally that these two things fit together. If the Skeptics Guide to the Universe and Skepticality and Skeptoid and all the rest of them are talking about parapsychology, albeit in a disparaging way, then naturally 
they're going to want to dialogue with those researchers. And I was naive enough to think that they actually did. What I found is that they don't. What they really want is to be left in their little island over there, in their little world, and talk about these things among themselves. I think that's wrong-headed. I mean, how can you say you really want to have it? You want to engage in an intellectual kind of free thought, critical examination of these things without looking at the other side. It seems silly, yet that is the landscape. They really don't want to interact with anyone. I guess I've bridged that a little bit, but then anyone who's been around the show for a while, as you know, that becomes tedious, tiresome, and worn out pretty soon too, because there's not a lot of real interaction there with the hardcore skeptics and atheists. They just kind of have this party line kind of thing that's hard to penetrate. What is effective is going to, I guess, the level two people behind that, the the mainstream researchers in the field who more or less echo a lot of those same skeptical, materialist, atheist kind of worldview things and kind of pulling them into uh, this kind of debate and dialogue, I think is fruitful and, and will remain fruitful for as long as I want to do it. Oh, I've tried. I've pursued Steve Novella a half dozen times since then. <laughs> so he used to respond, although very slowly to my request, he doesn't respond anymore, which has been the case over and over again with, with skeptics. And they lose an argument and they run away. I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, but it really is the truth. There, there just should be so much more engagement with these issues in a debate format. It really doesn't wash the skeptical position at the end of the day. It doesn't hold. I mean, I'm here. I will engage, debate, whatever you want to call it, anyone, anywhere, anytime. I don't know why anyone wouldn't do the same. I mean, if you think your ideas hold up, you got to say, hey, bring it on. And I think this has become an issue for me lately, mainly because what I've seen unfolding in the Rupert Sheldrick Wikipedia drama. Now, for those of you who don't know what's going on there, Rupert Sheldrick is a Cambridge biologist who has some mildly controversial ideas about this thing called morphic residence. Well, for whatever reason, he's gained the ire of the skeptical community, if you will, and they've all gotten together and just kind of taken over his Wikipedia page and turned it into a total mess. And when a couple of folks went in there and tried to clean it up and trying to add some other references to give it a more neutral point of view, they just ran them right out of Wikipedia, which I have to say, I predicted and I told these guys that's exactly what it's going to happen because I think people around the outside don't understand the nastiness that goes on inside of certain aspects of the skeptical community and, and how unrelenting they are in this kind of fanatical point of view. Yeah, and that was that was the Silk Glove version of describing uh, this fact, in my view. But okay. the thing is, you started sincerely with inquiring. And at some point, I suspect pretty early, you, you realized what's what here. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I remember because you were big in the beginning in terms of numbers, not just because there wasn't that many podcasts, because you were one of the unique forums where you brought together the different sites not as a primitive gladiator uh, entertainment thing, more as a truth-seeking thing. And my my theory is that when skeptics, we call them skeptics, they're of course pseudo-skeptics, but these fanatics, they don't mind really if they are going to be on a tribal gladiator battle kind of thing, especially if they know that the other side 
is usually a, a religious nutcase because they are easy to to uh, get these cheap shots from and 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 so called expose. So that they will do, but when they see, I don't know if you're aware of this yourself, but I've noticed this when they realize. Even if they know who you are already, but when they realize that you're not there for your ego and you're not there to fight and you're not there to just give them an advertisement platform, all those things they like. But you're sincerely inquiring for the truth with scientific tools. That's too much for them. That's what freaks them out. That more than anything, the follow the data, point to the science is why they fear you. It's not because you're a good uh, debater and can get some quick uh, sheep points in, uh, quick shots. They, they can handle that. They do the same. But the, the whole, the whole paradigm crumbles when it's not like, oh, we're not here to do a partisan fight. We're here to actually find the truth. That's like, look, everybody understands if it's a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness, yes, if he's going to convert you, no problem, he will, he will come. If it's going to be to applaud him, yes, he will come. Even a battle, but if it's truth, if it, yeah, you know, when Jehovah's Witness was founded and look, here's the original Bible you had and oh, oh no, they're going to, it's all sectarians freak out. Scientologists, what? You're going to tell me that Hubbard was involved with OTO? I'm out of here. You understand what I mean? I do. And uh, again, I'm so tempted to go to level three, which is where we usually go. So I'll, I'll, I'll rein that in and just say, I think what has happened in the last two years brings all that in focus in a different way that you and I are, are just now kind of wrapping our our head around and you know it's it's the kind of the skeptic the skeptics always say so many brilliant things only they don't realize they're brilliant because they're the exact opposite of the way they interpret them but you know <laughs> it really is an issue of why people believe weird things fundamentally it's it's why people believe weird things so skeptics believe weird things they believe that you're you're not conscious they believe that you're a biological robot, a meaningless universe, even though everything they know, our whole world tells them differently. They, they believe it. That's a very weird thing to believe. They believe that they should focus on some science and completely ignore other science. That's a weird thing to believe. Religious people, even like you said, you just said it, you know, you can kind of say, do you really think that the Quran, where it says that you can take women as slaves and do whatever you want with them, and then they, but they have to wear a veil? Do you think all these rules, it, same with Judaism, all these rules, you got to dance around three times and don't touch electronics. <laughs> does any of that really make any sense? No. But, but So why do people believe weird things, which is the title of a book that I think Shermer or one of those people wrote in... <laughs> it's the opposite again so their thing was like why do people believe in ghosts and extended consciousness wow what a weird thing it's like no that's not weird at the same time they believe that you can upload human consciousness to a computer and they believe that a computer can be sentient <laughs> that's just as weird well <laughs> and as you and i know that probably isn't really what they even care about there any e anyway. Mm. Uh, I think the transhumanist agenda is really much more about other 
Uh, oh sure, you know. sure. But but they need the materialist uh, paradigm as a, a useful yes. idiot to exactly. implement that agenda. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, we all know that. Yeah. So, but, but it is famous. Some of these shows where you had uh, had to had with some of these skeptics are infamous or famous, uh, whatever you want to choose. But I remember even even people. You know, I, I said uh, many people in my circle back then were listening to you and, and, and I picked up some shows via Facebook then. But I remember uh, after a while when you started to realize what was going on and, and that really harbingering the transition from skeptical 1.0 to 2.0, but you didn't just lose skeptics as listener, you even lost agnostics and and people who was at the pro, let's say, Sheldrake side because, and you touched upon it, what they wanted and expected and were used to was this usual gladiator battle, uh, stuck and stupid debate that you're going to elaborate on late in a later clip. So they couldn't handle that you moved on from stuck on stupid uh, and, and, and wanted it to take it to level two or skeptical two O. Do you agree with that? Um, uh, I totally agree with that. And I'm itching to ask you what you think that is about, why people remain married to right. a debate maybe it's because they feel like comfortable that they've won that and they want to stay in that okay we're we've won that so we i don't get it uh, i think you actually speculate about it in one of the clips i have lined out and i think you're on the money there but now it's just one of those things uh, people are habitual maybe uh, they came into it with that format and they didn't like... I don't think those in the beginning realized it was going to become a real journey. Right. Right. Usually, if people uh, make something work, you know, don't fix it if it works. So, um, I think that's too much for some. So, if, if I'm used to having at Netflix, like, romantic comedies, uh, I sit and watch there or whatever, and then suddenly they start pushing a lot of conspiracy documentaries. <laughs> I'm out of here. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, hey, it's, you, you, I think you're spot on with that. And it's a, you know what, wait, again, it's the, the two quotes. Back to the Shirley MacLaine, it's all about entertainment. And the other is the very famous, fantastic Canadian media, just mystic Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. You know, he, he said, you don't read the Sunday Times back when there was a newspaper, you mm. get into it like a warm bath. Well, we can all relate to that. You sit down to watch the ball game. It's really not about the teams, although you'd like to think it is. It's about the whole experience, the memories. I used to do this with my dad. This is my couch this is where I sit. It's the whole experience. So when somebody comes along and says, you know, Form Borealis is about this. And the next thing you do and you say, well, you know what? I just learned this. So now Form Borealis has to change because what I thought I knew, I now mm, know something mm, different. Mm, People are like, oh, well, what about that spot I had on the couch <laughs> where I used to always watch the foggy? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, well put. But this really uh, is the transition from skeptical 1.0 to 2.0. The next clip, it's one of the longer ones, but I, I titled it Trouble in Paradise. Not about the data. Big question as driving points. I think you explain very succinctly here how come the transition from 1.0 to 2.0 happened. So let's listen to that. Well, 
I think you've kind of pinpointed really a turning point in the show, at least in my mind, and that's that I had this idea starting out that it's about the data. You know, this is science after all, and science is concerned with measurement and data and evidence. And my thought was, hey, look, let's just try and get our arms around the data. Let's get good data. And then any reasonable person will be able to sort that out and decide one way or another. And I pretty quickly got an idea that maybe that wasn't as simple as I thought and that there were other things going on. The, the whole thinking with how we can remain completely married to these beliefs and to this interpretation of the data that just doesn't fit with just the kind of common sense understanding of it really sent me in a different direction and saying, you know what? It's not about the data. It's really about everything else. It's about why we believe what we believe, how our belief systems develop, how our belief systems change. And until we really figure that stuff out, then all this stuff about the data is more or less a sideshow. When I do those shows, the reaction is usually polarized. There's so many people, and this always surprises me, who are proponents, believers, if you will, who are really offended. I mean, they just don't like controversy. You can see, and they don't like this kind of confrontational, battling it out kind of thing. And that always surprised me. I, I don't know how you really get to the bottom of things that you care about deeply or that you have strong opinions about without having a little bit of, of friction. And while I don't seek those shows out, and I don't think those need to be the main focus of Skeptico, I do feel a need to revisit those topics every now and again, because one of the conclusions that I came to in this, hey, it's not about the data, it's about everything else, is... There's a question, I think, in the back of everyone's mind, which is, how can this be? I mean, here's this guy or here's this group of people who are saying, fundamentally, the scientific model that we have is flawed. And the immediate question you have to be is, how can that be? Wait a minute. I have this iPhone 5 here that is a testament to how great science is. So don't tell me science is wrong. How can this be? So I think we have to occasionally go back and revisit that and really look hard at what the other folks have to say. The folks who say, no, you are a biological robot. Life does have no meaning and it's all about machines. I think we do have to go back and, and give them the floor every once in a while and, and, and hash that out with them. To me, at a very kind of deep personal level, I always wondered why everyone wasn't interested in these topics. Why I always wondered why, why these weren't the first and foremost questions on everyone's mind. I mean, most of us spend so much time on ridiculously silly things of the weather or sports or news or all the rest of that. When the big questions are, who are we really? What happens to us after we die? How are we related to not only each other, but the universe. I mean, these are the big, big, big questions. And I guess I always had a sense of, hey, am I not getting the newsletter here? I mean, does everyone else know the answers to these? Because why isn't why isn't this foremost on everyone's mind? And then you, you kind of get into life and you, you want to make a living and you want to have a family and all that. We all understand that. And you say, hey, I can't deal with all those things right now. They don't seem to be pressing as, as much as the mortgage payment or the car payment is. So I kind of put them to the side. But to me, they always seem to be the questions that I wanted to come back to. So that really is the driving force of skeptical, along with the idea that I had all along 
because of my business experience. And that was the idea that I can learn, I can get better, I can improve. Because I was someone who, despite having the right academic background and education background, was failing pretty miserably at business before I kind of went on a massive kind of learning campaign in terms of how to make myself better and how to improve in that. So I kind of took that self-improvement idea and that self-improvement success that led to business success and said, hey, I can bootstrap myself into knowing the answer to these big, big questions. And that's really been, I guess, the driving force of Skeptico. So uh, first, I call this clip Trouble in Paradise for two reasons. Number one, you smelled a rat which is why you moved from Skeptical 1.0 to 2.0. But also, like we just said, <laughs> some listeners, it was trouble in paradise for them too that you moved on higher up the mountain. So they fell off. Yeah. But let me ask you, when you started to understand what's what when it comes to these skeptics and uh, materialists, about when did that happen? How early did you become convinced? I mean, first time, uh, I guess you thought it was a one-off. Second time... You talk with such a guy. I guess you, you you suspected a pattern, but would you never manage to talk with anyone at the truth level and sincere level and scientific level that you were naively expecting? Then obviously it became clear. So how early did that happen that you became convinced? And was that really the impetus to move to to uh, skeptical two or not being stuck on stupid debates? It was pretty early because in those first interviews, I was able to kind of get to the point where I could directly confront these people with, you know, you're interviewing Steve Novella from Yale University. He's a podcaster, but he's also a neurosurgeon or not a neurosurgeon. What is he? Neurologist, neurologist at Yale University. And he's screwing the, the, the data. He's screwing it up. He's not, mm. I'm, I'm giving him the data and then he messes it up. I go, you messed it up. He goes, oh yeah, I did mess that up. I'm sorry. And he's got skeptic Ray Hyman on there from Dr. Ray Hyman from Oregon, who has passed away, but you know, I hadn't passed away. We looked through his files. He was CIA. Oh, isn't that interesting? Mm. But anyways, I knew it was bullshit, but here's the point that I guess I accepted uh, what still a lot of people say when you speak to them today, which is, you know, if I, I just had an interview with Dr. Bruce Grayson, and Bruce Grayson is phenomenal. Talk about standing on shoulders. 40 years has been instrumental in advancing near-death experience science. But you say, hey, uh, Bruce, it's a fucking conspiracy. What are you talking about? Obviously, <laughs> this this is a rigged game because it's easier to control people if they think are a biological robot meaningless universe. So that's what is the impediment to any real traction with near-death experience science. But, but he wouldn't go there? He, he, very, very reluctant to go there. And yes, he wouldn't go there. He goes, so, you know, I, to, to, he goes to the one funeral at a time thing. He goes, no, I but just... But how does he explain? How does he... Uh, he must know. He's a parapsychologist. He must know it's a rigged game. So how does he uh, rationalize it? I think he rationalizes it. I mean, where where I'm going with this and where you are comfortable going with it, which I've come to understand that this is, again, you know, your mountain uh, metaphor is, is uh, analogy is perfect. Because when you get into the conspiracy stuff, which we'll get into, 
it then goes a different level where people go, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not, no, 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 no. That's not the world I live in. I don't live in that world. I don't live in that world. So when you tell somebody like Bruce Grayson, he immediately runs the whole thing. He goes, wait a minute. You mean the guy that I sit with at lunch who's been here for 20 years? He might, it might be more than just he's, ah, oh, he's a rigid old guy that won't change his beliefs. It might be more than that. It might be that he's been somehow influenced or engineered to think a particular way for a particular reason to satisfy a particular agenda. Hmm. Yeah, that is very, very hard for the scientist to, to think of. And it is a Stockholm syndrome kind yep. of thing, yep. right? Yep. Stockholm yep. syndrome. It's like, I, I, these are my friends. And they just had me over to a big uh, celebration dinner like the one we're having here. And they gave me an award and stuff like that. Now I'm going to go piss on them and say, yeah, but you guys are liars and you, you deceive people <laughs> here and you did this. I, I can't. I, I, I don't feel. Besides the fact that I'll lose my job. I mean, right, I'll right. not only lose my job, I'll lose my prestige. I'll lose Reputation, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but there's no doubt that in the beginning you were very um, respectful of them in, in terms of I mean, you're always respectful when you talk with people too. But I mean, like you were really thinking that they had something to say and you wanted to listen and you wanted to give them a chance. So you didn't start out debunking scientism, but you quickly realized uh, that it's not a 50-50. It's actually one side is right, the other wrong, which sometimes well, happens, right? And then you... Well, the, the other thing, yeah. the other thing, and I think you, you just hit on it before yeah. with, with what you said. I mean, I, I did really think it was about the data. Yeah. So from, again, from my business standpoint, you know, you realize that some people like uh, Heineken and some people don't like Heineken. Some people like Amstel, which is also made by Heineken. But, <laughs> you know, that's that's the way that it is. And you can't get in there and say, gee, you know, what's wrong with you for not liking Heineken beer? You know what I mean? Mm. So th there are differences that, that people have. And I thought fundamentally, if it's about the data, then I'll dance the dance, you know, and we'll, I'll listen to your points and we'll go through this and it'll be about the data and we'll sort it out. And that's what science is about. So that went on for quite a while because again, what's looming here in this story that we're telling is I didn't understand conspiracy. I was not open to that at all. I didn't believe any conspiracies. I thought they were all bunk, which is what most people thought up until a couple of years ago. <laughs> you got hit with the <laughs> pandemic and now everyone's like- Well, even, you know, even before. Like, like, well, I said, like I said to Mark yesterday, I said to him, you know what's the difference between reality and conspiracy theory? Let's see if you, he, he knew the answer. What's the answer? I don't know. Minimum six months. <laughs> so, right. but uh, my point is just you, you, you realized that one side is wrong, one is right. You realized consciousness is key. You realize scientism is bunk. And isn't that really, right. isn't that really when we enter skeptical 2.0? Yes. Because then you went off on uh, surfing of uh, topics like near-death experience. I mean, you, you like you said in the former clip, you sometimes revisit old topics, and that's great. So even today, you you, you will still have skeptics on if it fits the 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 whatever you're doing, and they are willing. That's one of the problems. They they're running away. They won't get on. They won't absolutely go you know, into base. Yeah. To to emphasize that point, uh, I I seek them out. I mean. And it's harder now because it's even harder. People, 
the whole environment they own to you (laughs) the the environment has changed you know i used to get accused of sandbagging people because i'd reach out to these skeptics and they would go no further than researching the name skeptico and they'd say this is gonna be a this is gonna be an easy interview and they'd come on and i wasn't intentionally trying to sandbag them no it's their own laziness it's intellectual laziness exactly if you're not if you're not able to do that but i did score a lot of interviews with people who would normally not engage and and that was the reason for it but Mm. i i i constantly you know reach out to people who have an opposing view and try and get them on the show and it's sometimes successful but are you going to talk about patricia churchland and ben radford um ben is going to be mentioned by you very briefly in the I, I like, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be a Forum Borealis show too, not just a skeptical show. And usually I have like a, at the end of Forum Borealis, I rant, but at the end of this show today, I'm going to just play a meshed, uh, slimmed version of your clip called Five Things You Should Know About Skeptical, because that's those five things is what is valid today. And there, I think you mentioned briefly, Ben, but you can, you can uh, remind us what was the Churchland thing about? I gotta tell this. I gotta tell this story because it's so much uh, in in my mind, and it was one of those that really did kind of, I don't know. It did change things in terms of I got a lot of a lot of people from a lot of different places contacted me after this show, and it 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 did make a certain impact, you know. So Patricia Churchland is a com- very very well known and highly regarded in academia for this kind of what she called neurophilosophy. And it's kind of this blending of religion and neurology and all the rest of this stuff. And she was an academic, which also leads to your other point. You know, so I was talking to skeptics, people who are just skeptics, like we'll talk about Ben Radford, just ah, I'll write for a skeptic magazine. Ah, a <laughs> but then I was talking to a lot of academics, like Steve Novella is not a, he's a skeptic, but he's not really a skeptic. He's a N- Yale neurologist. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't, that's, that's pretty, pretty high up there. And yeah. Patricia Churchland is at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, highly respected school, or she was at the time, and she's doing this neurophilosophy thing. <laughs> Anyways, I always remember this. So I called her up, and you know, I was cordial at the beginning. She agreed to come out. She didn't know what was going to hit her. Oh, I know the show you're talking about. <laughs> oh, people, you need to look it up. Go on, go on. So she she just is really kind of a, had a high and mighty kind of thing, which kind of irked me. So I kind of just was very direct with her. I wasn't at all unpleasant or unprofessional, but I just said, but, you know, you've quoted uh, Dr. Pin Van Lommel, this noted cardiologist from the Netherlands who had published a very groundbreaking book on near-death experience, 20 years, and he'd done all this research, published many peer-reviewed papers. I said, you've misquoted him. And she goes, oh really and she crumbles she yeah. totally fakes and she goes uh, total oh is is total met meta i go yeah i can read you the quote if you like and i can read you what he said after it and she goes oh wait. and then she hangs up so <laughs> so i call her back yes. so al i call her right back and what do you do what do you do i mean these people uh, they they are dumb in a certain way like from a business standpoint you just learn this sure. kind of stuff like sure. like you would they're, they're nerds if, you in that situation, if you've messed up your deal and then somebody and you hang up on the guy and he calls you back, you don't answer the freaking phone. No, but no she answers the I, phone. And I, I, I certainly you don't pretend that you didn't hang up. Exactly. <laughs> she answers the phone and pretends like she didn't hang up. And I think she thinks that I'm going to like 
just move on. I go, okay, well, let's get back to that quote that you misquoted in your book. And she hangs up again. <laughs> and I called her a third time and she did. She answered and then she kind of just wormed her way out of the interview. But Yeah, it was amazing to listen to because uh, don't they care about well, I, I think um, when, how they are perceived, the believability? I, I think... I think there, you know, when you said there's this, there was this spectrum of people out there, and you did a good job of my remembering of how it was, of in terms of people all over the board, in terms of, you know, parapsychology and kind of doubting is this the whole, mm. you know, proposition that we're talking about here of is science fundamentally uh, dogmatic in a way that it shouldn't be. It's not wrestling with the data. That was really an open question, and when people were confronted by Patricia Churchland, this kind of noted academic, mm. completely crumbling mm. when she's confronted directly with the question, I think it caused a lot of people to hesitate and go, wow, I really, I, I really am standing on very shaky ground when I, yeah. when I advance this position. Susan Blackmore, it was kind of more intelligent because what she did, she too crumbled, but she would like pretended that the attitude she met you, you with is her default attitude. She was like, no, no, I never said that. No, she was running away from the position. No, no, I don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. So she tried to uh, uh, grasp desperately onto her academic integrity. So you couldn't bust her because she was she was unbustable because she, she, she yielded all claims and all. But of course, as soon as she's out of there and she goes on one of these pro-skeptic shows, then she's right back to to the misleading, uh, dishonest uh, attitude. Well, that's what I busted her on. That's what I busted her on, and I think it was very effective. It's because that is incredibly deceptive to come on and say, well, you know, where I pushed her on on that is to say uh, that, that I said, are you aware of this research? And it was the research of Dr. Jeffrey Long. And she goes, to be honest with you, I haven't stayed up to date on that research enough mm -hmm. to comment on it, which is like a, a, a pseudo real answer. Like you'd hear that from a scientist, you go, wow, that person's legit, you know? It was a gift to you though, because you could hit that in the head with every other skeptic after that who tried to use her as an out to debunk. Well, I could also, I could also hit her with it because six months later, she was out doing her same PowerPoint presentation on how right near-death experience was easily debunked by this and that so she had directly contradicted herself in a fundamental way so yeah it's yeah yeah there, there were a lot of a, a lot of good ones there uh, oh yeah way back but it was a different it's a different time back when i thought that there was a realness sure. to that and also I, I often wondered about susan blackmore in terms of you, you know because you you mentioned the word useful idiot and i think that, that it's really important my friend Joseph Atwell has done a great job of this over the years talking about there's the lifetime player, there's the part-time player, and there's the useful idiot. Mm. You know, so the lifetime player is the Gloria Steinem, which we referenced, you know, she, she was recruited into CIA or, or maybe even Jeffrey Epstein, you know, now they have the, yeah. we've, they've come out and said, you know, the, uh, gifted child kind of thing, maybe groomed from a super young age, you know, mm. all that stuff is like a whole different level of this stuff. And I'm not saying that Susan Blackboard, but I'm saying there's a range of people who are groomed for this kind of role that is going to be manipulated. And then there's that's the lifetime player. Then there's the part time player. It's like, hey, I need this op. I need this thing 
done, you know, and maybe it's a James Randi stumbles into the police station because they caught yeah, him. I was, I was thinking, yeah. Mm. <laughs> exactly. They caught him making illicit phone calls with underage kids, underage boys, which they did. And they got him in, they put him in the room and they go, pal, you are going to place where you don't want to go because i tell you what they do with pedophiles in that place and he just goes oh what do you want and they go okay hmm. i'll tell you what you want when we call you answer when we tell you what to do you do it so is that i'm not saying i don't know if any of that's true i just know you can go listen to the tapes with james randy you can draw your own conclusion but he's just an example anyway we got your point he's an but example blackmore should but be that's the part-time player but then where i was really trying to go so there's the part-time player and then there's the useful idiot yeah. you know which for our best guess is I hate to say it but dr patricia churchland she doesn't she doesn't even aware that she's spewing no. out such nonsense that is completely in line with some party line that someone has decided is the you're a biological robot meaningless universe paradigm. She doesn't even understand that she's propping that up. She just is by <clears throat> her default. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this isn't even speculation. It's this exact same playbook going on in mainstream media. You know, uh, Manufacturing Consent, I believe, is the title of the book of uh, Mr. Uh, what's he called? The Darling of the Left, um, um, the Lingwill Professor. Um, very old Jewish American guy. What's his name? It's not Soros, is it? No, ma no. he's an oh. oligarch. I'm talking about an academic. Manufacturing Consent is his book. Consent uh, or dissent? Consent. Oh, manufacturing Consent? Yeah. That's what the media does, he revealed. And right. did you get his name? Oh, yeah, Chomsky. Noam Chomsky. So he, he, he revealed the whole playbook. It works like this. If you are a moron with, with the wrong ideas, then you are an employee with the right ideas. So, so I will hire that guy out of journalism school or whatever because he has the right attitude, the right ideas, and I'll sponsor. So it's not like... I'm telling every newscaster, you're in on a huge conspiracy here, okay? You have to... No, no, he just... Yeah, I'm here for my career. Exactly. And uh, yeah, okay, these are the talking points for today. Okay, well, let's go. And he believes he's free to do and say what he wants because whatever he says is going to be exactly the narrative that uh, the powers that be, uh, in this case, let's say, the owner of Fox News or CNN, wants him to say. So, so the conspiracy here is is actually just a little segment a little fragment of the whole kind of game if you see what i mean well yeah. so uh, i like that thing lifetime player part-time player and useful idiots and i'll say most of them are useful idiots then the second biggest group is the part-time players the the blackmailing files and then you have the smallest but most essential group of of full-time actors we have to move on, uh, Alex. I, the okay. next clip is kind of in the same line. My next clip is just when skeptical point two oh is consolidated. Here you are debunking scientism and explaining why consciousness is key. And that's a difference from what you would do in the first hundred shows or whatever. Now you had taken that journey over, over the bridge, burnt the bridge behind you. You're taking a stand. You're coming clear out and saying what's what. One of the topics I think that has been a recurring theme of the show is 
how we communicate about these topics in the court of public opinion, if you will. And a lot of people will kind of have a knee-jerk reaction when I mention God or when I mention believer or when I mention any of these things. And when I'm pressed, like in the forum, I'm quick to acknowledge that I don't know what God means. I don't, I don't have any specific idea of a guy in a beard or anything like that. But I'm using a shorthand reference to kind of shoehorn us into the public debate. I mean, the big debate is science versus religion. Whether we like it or not, that's what's out there. That's what's socially relevant in terms of the discussion. So in that sense, okay, I'm a believer. If you want to divide the world into skeptics and believers, I'll gladly take the side of believer. I don't think that term means anything to me other than it means if we're going to engage in this dialogue and there has to be sides, this is the side I'll take for purposes of this discussion. Scientific materialism is a failure. I mean, it's a failed proposition. It was a good proposition. I think the evidence is overwhelmingly suggestive that that just doesn't hold up. And I think with it, atheism falls down the drain as well. So I think those propositions are falsified. So yeah, that would push me to whatever other category you want to call it. You know, I'm going to be closer to that other side. I don't think the middle holds here. I don't think the, oh, I'm agnostic. I just have questions about this. I don't think it holds. And the reason it doesn't hold is because you have to make a decision every day in the way that you live your life. We live in a materialistic world, a materialistic economy, a materialistic society. That is the predominant worldview that's placed upon you. If you do nothing, you are thereby embracing materialism. So you can't say, I'm removed from this discussion. You're in the middle of it. You're the fish. You're in the water. The water is all around you. So you can't say, I'm agnostic. Your life is your choice. And I've had numerous conversations along these lines that the middle doesn't hold. There really isn't a middle ground. Life forces us to choose one way or another. You know, one of the things I've come to appreciate about this biological robot, scientific materialism that I bash repeatedly because it's so strongly ingrained, enmeshed in our culture, and yet it doesn't hold up. And that just kind of galls me from a, from a critical thinking standpoint. How can something so wrong have such traction? So I'm always bashing it. On the other hand, especially lately, I've come to appreciate how hard and difficult it is to get beyond that, and how reassuring it is to fall back on the notion of materialism. I mean, everything gets really, really fuzzy when you kind of go into this post-scientific materialism realm. And by that, I mean, what is reality? I mean, if consciousness is fundamental. So, right, so this debate of biological robots is that, you know, you're just a robot, you're just a machine. And the counter theory is that in somehow in some way we don't understand this thing of consciousness, this me, this ghost inside the machine is fundamental. So matter isn't fundamental, consciousness is fundamental. That's one hypothesis. Well, what does that really mean? It means that all these ideas of measurement, all these ideas of reality, if you will, are now have to be put on hold. So we can no longer in that world talk about reality or talk about our experience or talk about things like time. It, it all kind of falls apart. So in that sense, what I've said before, and, and, and I think it holds, is that, hey, I'm going to play this little game with you called consensus reality. 
And we're going to pretend that this desk that I'm tapping on is real, is solid. Even though we know it's 99.99999% nothing, it appears solid to me. You can see it. I can see it. We're going to call this reality. And in that same way, we're going to call all these things that we debate about reality. And we're going to call skeptics on this and this and that. But at the same time, while we're doing that, we have to acknowledge that that might all be just kind of a game, if you will. And there may be a bigger, larger truth out there that we're not really dealing with when we talk about things in that way. And that's pretty abstract, but I think you can see where I'm going and why it's necessary to kind of talk out of both sides of your mouth when you talk about skeptics versus believers or scientism or even scientific evidence. Because when I look at the shows lined up chronologically, it's pretty obvious that in the beginning you're you're, you're doing this um, both sides things and and slowly but surely realizing what's what. But at this period in part two, you're deep diving into the consciousness is key type of shows. Yeah. So I, I say that's the hallmark of Skeptical 2.0 that you left the old, uh, I'm going to be the judge of uh, the debate here and, and see who's right. Now you're fully immersed, exploring. You've, you found truth on one side, now you're deep diving into that. Do you agree with that description? Yes. No. <laughs> yes. Hey, can we take a break for uh, five, ten minutes? Yeah, sure. sure, sure. Do, that. Do that. Before we move Before on we move to Skeptical 3.0. Okay. Yeah. 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 All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.